Okay, good evening and welcome. Um, those of you who have come through the weather, I understand that uh, I've missed several very good lectures, and I'm very sorry about that. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm chair of the Public Lectures Committee here at Princeton University. I'm uh, on the faculty in neuroscience, and, uh, and I am very pleased to have made it back from California in time for tonight's lecture. So I think, as most of you already know, the Public Lecture Series is a series of lectures for both the Princeton University community and the community at large. And if you're interested in knowing about the, uh, the lecture series uh, and you enjoy tonight's lecture, you may go to our new website at lectures.princeton.edu and learn about all the uh, remaining lectures for this semester. The next one is coming up in March, and that's going to be the food writer Ruth Reichel. And she'll be appearing in early March. And to find out the exact date, you need to go to the website. OK. Um, so I think you've already heard from uh, Vicki Kern from the Princeton University Press about this particular lecture series. This is the Lewis Clark Vanuxum lecture series. And this is uh, endowed by the Lewis Clark Vanuxum from the class of 1879, who made his money in insurance, but endowed a lecture series that's mostly science. And uh, you already know that these lectures include Edwin Hubble, and speaking on the exploration of space, Thomas Mann lecturing on Goethe's Faust, James Conant, Ralph Ellison, and Carl Sagan. So uh, it's been a distinguished series so far. And adding to the luster of it is tonight's speaker, who is giving the third of three lectures. And that is Professor Avi Vigderson. And uh, Professor Vigderson is a professor from the Institute for Advanced Study. And his series is entitled A Worldview for, Through the Computational Lens. And I'm sure we're all very much looking forward to his third lecture. Dr. Vigdeson. Thank you. Let's see if we can switch it back. Today we had some. That's one. Okay. Now the light, like yesterday, like you preferred. it work? Can we reduce the light? Light down? Projection note taking. <laughs> That's the heading here. Well, it's good. People can come in while they lower the lights. So, <clears throat> uh, let me start. I guess I'll get it on. So uh, we are in the last uh, lecture of this series. Actually, I'm getting used to it, so maybe we can continue next week also, but, uh, if the weather is better. Uh, I'm going to talk today about uh, cryptography, secrets and lies, knowledge and trust. And uh, it's, by, in some sense, the uh, most fun of of all three, although the other two were also, I think, uh, had some element of fun in them. Uh, so let me remind you some of uh, what we did. So in the previous two lectures, those of you that weren't here, we discussed, first of all, the notion of an algorithm, the formal way to cap capture computation. And uh, we discussed computational complexity, namely the amount of resources, mainly time, that it takes to solve specific computational tasks. Uh, what we are going to talk about today is, uh, is one 
application of computational complexity that's extremely powerful and also quite a bit surprising in the sense that, as you'll see, we are not using the fact that some problems are easy to solve, but actually we are taking big advantage of the fact that some problems are hard to solve. So I would start if they manage to let, because I think these, these lights really kill the, kill the screen. Maybe we should start today with questions and then <laughs> <laughs> everything understood so far. Yeah, maybe someone has a question about uh, yesterday or the day before while we are waiting. Okay. I'll, uh... Yeah, question. Yes. Something is happening. All right. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good. I don't see you. You can do what you like. Uh, so I want to tell you about uh, the, this concept, the digital envelope, that I'll define for you, and the wonders of the digital envelope. Uh, and this is the cryptography, the art of hiding uh, information uh, that is the modern theory of cryptography, the one based on computational complexity. And uh, this will follow this uh, line of uh, topics and talks we discussed, the uh, computational complexity of uh, problems, uh, and they will uh, serve as a sort of foundational, uh, ma mathematical basis for this security theory that is behind all the security that you know of or that you use in the internet and in electronic commerce. That's a plan. It's a long plan. Uh, okay, what uh, are we doing? Uh, I'll start uh, describing really quickly in a second uh, what was there in cryptography before uh, the theory based on computational complexity began. And then uh, I want to talk about the ambitions of this modern theory, the one we are discussing today. And I want to make clear to all of you what are the assumptions, because there are assumptions. So whenever you next time use your credit card on the internet, you should know what you are believing, uh, if you trust it. Uh, then I'll explain, uh, under these assumptions, what is a digital envelope. And then we start exploring the power of this uh, wonderful gadget. Uh, in particular, we'll see zero knowledge proofs, uh, and uh, we'll talk about private communication, and if we have time, oblivious computation. I'll explain all these terms, and uh, uh, then we'll conclude. So let's start from the beginning, uh, the history of uh, cryptography. Uh, <clears throat> the cryptography before uh, 1980 was mainly about, or 1975, was mainly about secret communication. So that's the main task that people were interested in, which is a big topic, a big, a very important uh, part of cryptography, of course, the ability to communicate uh, secretly uh, in the presence of, uh, oops, 
in the presence of uh, some listeners. And uh, in most of this theory, or maybe in all of it, there was some assumption, either explicit or implicit, that the people who want to exchange secret communications share some piece of information, like this book that maybe they encode their secret messages starting at page 879. There are lots of pages here. Uh, and uh, actually the first, maybe one of the major breakthroughs of the theory is to replace the names of the heroes rather than Bond and M to call them Alice and Bob. And you'll see that this makes a, a big difference. We'll, Bob and Alice will be the heroes of this talk. So let's talk about the, the new theory. So first, what are the ambitions? What kind of things do we want to do? So we want to do, in fact, everything in which the following two aspects are important uh, you know, uh, considerations. One is the secrecy or privacy of information to participants. And the other is uh, the ability to prevent bad guys from interfering or ruining whatever it is we are trying to do. And if you think about it, this pretty much covers uh, lots of what happens in everyday life. So I'll start to give you some examples of uh, things like that, you know, situations where these are important. And in almost all of them, I mean, there, there were issues that did not uh, arise in the in 1980. They arose, uh, you know, millennia ago. Uh, and people, in fact, developed ways of dealing with them, and most of these ways uh, had to include some kind of physical implements. So there are lots of examples. Some are you know, jokes and some are not. Well, encryption, there are you know, the encryption books like this War and Peace in that case. Uh, identification, you want to, nobody to be able to impersonate you, and we use various things like driver licenses, uh, you know, ability to exchange money, currency, then we have this you know, notes or checks, or what have you, coins. Uh, the ability to, to bid on something, we'll discuss it later. We use the sealed envelopes. What else? Well, protecting information is uh, one way is to put it in a safe. Playing poker is a very important example uh, where this privacy and fault tolerance are important, and uh, people invented these wonderful cards which have opaque backs, you cannot see through them. Uh, lotteries, uh, we have these elements of chance. Contract signing, you know, you can get, uh, I can continue on and on, can be, uh, become more and more ridiculous. But seriously, that's the way people handled uh, this kind of issues. You consider the, the restrictions at hand, you consider what you want to do, and then you try to invent some kind of gadget that will help at least take care of the restrictions that are relevant to uh, the task you're trying to perform. So in the new cryptography, what we are trying to do is still try to do everything that you saw on this list and the previous list and every, anything else like this you can imagine, but we allow absolutely no physical implements. Everything is supposed to work digitally in communication between people or computers, we are not allowed to use anything physical, only information bits, and we allow no trusted parties. So nobody trusts anybody else. So that seems like a tall order, and uh, we'll first start from you know, the assumptions that, uh, well, well, we'll be able to do that. So uh, 
will, will uh, this, despite the fact that it seems like a tall order, uh, will be able to do it. So I want to explain under what condition. Okay, so what are we assuming? One is uh, the assumption we've made in the previous two lectures, and in fact the assumption that's easy to make, that everybody will agree, is that everybody, me, you, our computers, everybody else, are computationally limited. We don't have all the time in the world. There are some things we cannot do uh, if they take too long. And uh, that will be our first axiom for tonight. And uh, that means that only things that can be computed efficiently, quickly, will be, uh, we, we can perform. Others are just, uh, you know, like impossible. So let me remind you, those who weren't here and also those who were, about what do we mean hard and easy, what do we mean efficient and inefficient, and the example uh, we'll take is this problem we saw yesterday. Uh, in fact, two computational problems. One is multiplication. You get two integers, you are supposed to compute their product. We have an algorithm that we learn in elementary school, and it's quite efficient uh, when the numbers have n digits in them, they grow longer and longer. The running time, number of steps to perform it, grows something like n squared, not too fast. So this is uh, a problem that has an efficient algorithm, and it can be performed on very, very large integers, even billions of digits, no problem. Uh, on the other hand, there is the inverse problem, the problem of taking a number and getting from it the prime numbers that build it, right? There's two numbers that if you multiply them, you got it. And this is a problem for which we have no efficient algorithm yet. The best algorithm known runs in exponential time, and like we discussed yesterday, this means that it's prohibit prohibitively expensive, even for moderate n, even for, for numbers with, with uh, let's say, 200 digits. It's just basically impossible to do, <coughs> as far as we know. So, is it a hard problem? We'd like to say yes, <coughs> uh, but we really don't know. We just, currently the state of art is that this is the best way we know how to do it, and we will assume that it's hard. This will be our assumption. That will be our second assumption. So, our second axiom is that factoring is hard. Okay, so this will be the two axioms that we'll work with tonight. Let me write them down again. We assume that all participants are computationally limited and factoring integers is hard. So if you combine these two, it means that people who participate in whatever actions we, we are looking at cannot factor very large integers. So what does it give us? This, this is going to give us the main tool, this digital envelope that we are going to work with. So let's see how. So consider <coughs> uh, these two pieces of information. Here you have the pair of integers, let's say they are prime integers, one is p and the other is q, just the pair, and on the right you have their product, which is one integer. Now, the piece of information on the left and the piece of information on the right are completely equivalent. You can get one from the other, every one defines the other, completely. So from an information theoretic standpoint, there is no difference in having the one or having the other, because you can move between them. That's in the information theoretic world. When we are computationally limited, there is a huge difference between having one or the other, like we discussed. From this piece, you can get the right piece easily by an efficient algorithm. But going back, if I just gave you this, and these are large integers, then it's basically impossible under our axiom. So 
this asymmetry uh, suggests that we use this left-hand side as information in the open. It's like an information in an envelope that's been opened for you and you can pick inside. And this for the same piece of information but lying in a sealed envelope that you cannot look in. Okay? And what we'll see uh, so it's not far from trivial. I'm going to define the properties of the envelopes in a second, but basically what these axioms will give us, it's not as trivial as it looks in this picture, but what these axioms will give us is a digital envelope that I'll, whose properties I'm going to define for you. But it's basically, this theorem is, as I say, it's not easy, uh, but, uh, but the intuition is simply as, as I stated it. This is it's easy to move from here to here. It's hard to move from here to here. So let me just generalize it a little bit uh, because the axiom 2, we'll discuss it at the end again, because, uh, but axiom 2 seems like something that we may suspect. Maybe tomorrow someone discovers that factoring is an easy problem. Maybe someone discovers a fast algorithm for it. So maybe we should guarantee, you know, sort of safeguard ourselves. So in fact, what we will really use is uh, the existence of a one-way function. One-way function is exactly the picture you had before, but here defined more abstractly. It's any uh, way to apply a function E, E is this envelope function, you know, taking a number X, generating from it E of X easily. So there's an algorithm to move from X to E of X easily, but it's impossible to invert, given E of X, to figure out what X is, what's in the envelope. Okay, so you can base it on factoring, or you can base it on other uh, on other problems that you know we know not too many, but we know some. So again, in this uh, in our example, e of p q is simply the product. So e is the function multiplication. Its inverse is factoring, and as I said, there are other e's that we could use. So there are, we can replace the axiom with another axiom if factoring fails. I just want to give you the analogy that uh, it seems that in nature we know this kind of one-way functions. <laughs> and uh, there are many others you can think of. And uh, so it's not such a ridiculous assumption. And maybe we can find even more is in, uh, in nature. Uh, in, you know, I, there are some physicists in the audience. They may uh, question this, but uh, basically, uh, the situations in which this occurs in nature uh, seem to, to be guided by the second law of uh, thermodynamics, that uh, entropy increases and it's hard to get back order after you, you, know, you lost it. But anyway, uh, this is just an analogy. We are not going to use that. We are just going to use that. Good. So what properties are we going to use in all the examples that I'm going to show you? So. Uh, what is an envelope? What for us will be an envelope? It's uh, the gadget that for which we can do the following four things. Uh, four things are guaranteed for us. First, <clears throat> well, uh, maybe there is a, even uh, a zeroth assumption. You can get as many envelopes as you like. There is an infinite supply of envelopes. Now, it's easy to insert. Anybody can insert any number they want into an envelope. This number doesn't have to be a pair of primes. It can be just one bit if you want. Once it's in the envelope and it's sealed, nobody can compute the content 
of the envelope. It's just like opaque, completely opaque. But nevertheless, the envelope defines its content. It's not like you can you put X and later say I put Y there. You know, once the envelope is on the table, it's uniquely defined what's in it. Okay, it's impossible to change the content. And finally, it's very easy to verify that some piece of information is the content, right? Because moving from e x to e of x is an easy, is a, an efficient function. So these are the properties we'll use, and that's, you know, having the analogy of normal envelopes is, is very good for this, because that's what you expect in normal envelopes. And what I want to show you through a series of examples and uh, some more general theorems uh, is that having this gadget, and maybe a little stronger gadget, but basically this will give us the ability to do all the wonderful things I mentioned on the slide before and many more. Okay, so it's a, it's a lot and it's starting from this one primitive, so let's see how it works. So to show this power, I'm just going to give you a list of examples and in increasing order of difficulty just to, uh, you know, uh, starting from really trivial uh, ways of using this envelope to really sophisticated ways, and then we'll see why it is this you can believe me that you can do all these uh, wonderful things. Okay, so I just want to stress that <clears throat> most of this work was done in the 80s. Uh, remember, 80s, there was no internet. So these were, you know, theoretical games of a bunch of theoretical computer scientists that were just... Uh, playing these intellectual games, and uh, it's yet another example, like I defined, like I told you in the previous two lectures, of a situation where practice came after theory, and in fact, dependent on it. It's clear that the internet as we know it and the electronic commerce would not exist without this theory. Okay, so here's the simplest example. This example is begging for the use of envelopes because that's what we use in real life. So suppose we have uh, these three guys who want to buy my laptop. They uh, all have in their mind the maximum they are willing to pay for it. Uh, and they have to, you know, just bid for it. And, you know, they are, they are sitting here together in this room. And if one of them says the number, this guy 130, then the others know what he's willing to pay. So probably this guy will say 131 and I will lose money, which is bad. Uh, I want to guarantee to get, you know, the maximum each is willing to uh, give. And, of course, the way to do it is just like it's done in real life, but the fact that they are here in, uh, you know, in the same room just means that they are going to say numbers. They don't have physical envelopes. It's all, you know, digital or voice. But it doesn't matter. There will be two phases, like in, like in real life. Uh, the first guy will compute E of 130 and will just say it to everyone. And because of the properties of envelope, nobody understands this new number that he just uttered. It looks like you know, a random thing. But nevertheless, he's committed. It commits him. There's nothing he can claim later that he put here only 120. So the second will do it. The third will do it. It doesn't matter if they do it one after the other because what they utter is completely unintelligible. Once they all finish, then we move to the phase of exposing, which is opening the envelope. It's very easy, we said, to convince that a certain content is the content of an envelope, so they each say what they put there, and we check easily that indeed that's the case. And so that's a, you know, the obvious way. That's a trivial example of the digital envelope. It's used just like an envelope. 
But I just want to point out that uh, what it gives is the ability to introduce simultaneity, you know, the ability, you know, what, which we don't have in real life, of doing something simultaneous. Here, there is no simultaneity, but using the envelopes, you achieve the same effect. They don't, cannot follow each other and uh, change their strategy uh, with it. Okay, let's move to a slightly more uh, interesting example. This is by Blum from 81. Uh, this is a situation where you want to uh, flip a coin, have a random decision, and uh, in this story, so these are the heroes, Alice and Bob, and it's more interesting if they are talking on the phone rather than in, if they are in the same room. Uh, so there are lots of stories about this Alice and Bob in this, uh, in this theory, all sorts of weird situations they find themselves in, sometimes with other people. In this case, the story uh, that people usually tell is that uh, they are, you know, they just, uh, uh, they were married, they were divorced, and now they have to split the property, and they want to decide what to do with the car. And being computer scientists, they suggest to toss a coin. So. Here's the way it should go. You know, Alice tells Bob, uh, you know, let's flip a coin. If, you know, it's heads, then I get the car. If it's tails, then you get the car. Well, Bob says, well, okay, I'm flipping. Uh, well, it's tails. <laughs> uh, so obviously, maybe they don't trust each other that much in this situation. So we want something that secures them both. And again, the, the solution is, is quite simple. Anybody? What, what should they really do? Well, what Alice should do is do this. She puts a value, whatever hurts or stays, in an envelope and tells Bob, well, if you flip this, then you get the car otherwise, or then I get the car otherwise you do. And so she commits, committed to a value, but Bob doesn't know what it is. So he's flipping, you know, tails come up, and then he says, well, show me what you put in the envelope. And she can cheat, he cannot cheat, and that's the solution. And that's, uh, again, a simple one. And uh, again, it uh, has general impact because it allows people to uh, toss coins simultaneously in groups, and uh, it allows for symmetry breaking, which is very important in cryptographic protocols. Okay, let's move to another, uh, another example. This is a very basic one that you all do all the time when you log in into your computer, into your system. What happens? You get this prompt, you type your login, you get this uh, prompt, you type your password. <laughs> it's not my password anymore, don't worry. <laughs> so wh what happens in the computer when you do it? I don't know if you know. Uh, in the old times, many, many, many years ago, there used to be a file buried in the deep uh, crevasses of the computer that kept the passwords of people. And, uh, you know, it was hidden very deep. But uh, hackers existed already 30 years ago, and people realized that that's not a good idea. I mean, nothing is secret that's in the computer. But using these uh, envelopes, you can do something much better. You can put all these things in a file and even have it public and people would not be able to understand it because what you put in the file is not the password itself, but it's encryption, right? You put the password in an envelope. So here's my password. We apply E to it and this is some garbage that nobody can understand. So when 
I want to log in. So first of all, people looking at these values, even though it's a public file, don't know what the passwords are. As we said, it's impossible to compute what is inside the envelope. And that's, that's how things really work. Uh, and what happens when I log in? Well, the computer checks whether, so I put something here. The computer applies E to it. That's the easy direction, right? And checks that it matches with what's written in this file. Okay? And of course, it erases my password from the screen. Maybe someone's watching behind my back. Okay? So should we conclude that the digital envelope gives us identification? It's a trick question. Yes, no? Who is uh, for yes? Raise your hand. Nobody. <laughs> the brave man. Uh, who, is, who says no? Why? Yes. Very good. There are some computer people here. It doesn't mean anything. This, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't guarantee anything. And the, the reason is that First of all, people, of course, are eavesdropping on the line and so on. And the second, unlike the previous examples, in this example, we have repeated use of the same information. In the previous two examples, after the information was exposed, it was never used again. Whereas here, nobody changes their password every time they log on. And if they did, still people are looking. So what, what can we do about it? Here's the wishful thinking. So suppose we could, in some way, uh, rather than me telling the computer my password, I'll convince the computer that I know a value that if he applied E to it, he would get you know, this thing in the file. But I will not give it X. I'll just convince him that I know such an X. Now, that's uh, quite wishful thinking, right? Because what are we trying to do? We are trying to create something that, at the same time, is convincing and reveals no information. I'm not going to give the X. So if you think back to the last time that you convinced somebody of an opposite opinion they held without giving them information, uh, you can see how ridiculous this wishful thinking is. But let's pursue it anyway, right? So let's look at another application which is quite broad and uh, which is copyrights, the ownership of an idea. So this example I like to give to mathematicians. Uh, this is an example where Alice and Bob are two math professors. Alice is a junior uh, professor in the department, and Bob is the chairman. So Alice discovered the wonderful proof of the Riemann hypothesis. Again, I repeat, that's the biggest open problem in mathematics. And comes to the chairman and, uh, you know, says that you know, she, did, she did it, and he's, uh, of course, amazed and wants to see the proof, like everybody would in mathematics. And, well, uh, they go into the normal math conversation, which looks uh, <laughs> maybe a little boring and can take hours. But uh, at the end, you know, uh, it's a proof, you know. Bob is uh, amazed and uh, you know, maybe <laughs> uh, will promote her. That's the, that's the happy ending. In fact, that's a normal ending in mathematics. But mathematics has its, uh, you know, uh, stories. And in some cases, this guy is not as nice as he could be. And uh, <laughs> now, I'm sure uh, we, we can uh, yeah, tell stories about this at the end. 
There are incidents in the history of mathematics where this happened. So Alice wants to protect herself. Well, how can she protect herself? Well, if she could prove, she could convince Bob that she has a proof without revealing any information about it, that would do it, right? Well, so let's, let's look into this, uh, what we are trying to do. This uh, definition I'm defining for you now, what zero-knowledge proof is. We have a claim, a mathematical statement that both participants know about, and Alice here also claims to have a proof of it. Okay? And what they are trying to do, what they will do, is exchange some messages, just talk to each other like before. And at the end of it, we want what we want from every proof, right? We want that Bob decides, I believe it or not, accept or reject. And if the claim is true and the proof is right, then Bob believes it. That's the happy side. And if the claim is false, or the proof is wrong, then Bob rejects. That's the characteristics of a proof. Now, moreover, we said that we know, we, we want that if the claim is true, Bob accepts but learns nothing except that it's true. So we want that Bob gets no information from this process whatsoever. And as stand, it's just impossible. And what we are going to do to make it possible is allow for something that's quite reasonable, is the following. We allow randomness in the system. So what we allow them is for this exchange to be probabilistic, they are allowed to toss coins during the interaction. And then we want that if the claim is false, Bob re will reject with extremely high probability, but with tiny probability, whatever you decide, whatever Bob decides, one in a billion, one in a trillion, you know, whatever he wants, but positive, uh, there's some chance that he makes a mistake. And this chance is, just depends on the coin tosses, nothing else. So that's a zero-knowledge proof. It was introduced by uh, this you know, fundamental paper of Goldwasser, Mikali, and Drakov, 84. It's absolutely uh, basic and important to this whole theory, and we'll see soon why. So the question is whether this object exists. Very nice to have a, a mathematical definition, but can you do it for any interesting problems, for, like, let's say, the Riemann hypothesis? So what I want to show you is this theorem we proved in 86 with uh, Goldreich and Michali, is that not only is it possible, but in fact it's possible for anything that has a proof. So if you have a proof, you have a zero-knowledge proof. Every statement that has a proof can be, uh, you can convince anybody without telling them anything about the proof or about anything else. And we'll build up to this, so I want to show you how this is done. This is, will have an actual demonstration of a zero-knowledge proof, so hope you're ready. Um, and we'll start from something that looks completely unrelated. So we are going to uh, give a zero-knowledge proof of statements that are very different than the Riemann hypothesis. We are going to uh, have zero-knowledge proofs of coloring of maps. So what is coloring of a map is like here in all the geography books that you know, you see a, a you know, uh, a map, and in, the, in it there are countries, and countries are if they are adjacent, they should be colored different colors, so we can easily distinguish between them. So legal coloring is one in which adjacent countries get distinct colors. 
So here's an interesting question. How many colors do you need given a map? Well, I'm sure some of you know something about this. So if I ask you, can this map, here actually there are about five colors used. So if I ask you whether it's four color, what would you say? Yes, that's right. Even without looking at the map, right? Because there is a famous four color theorem uh, of Apple and Haken uh, that uh, says that every map is four colorable. So the computational question given a map, is it four colorable, is a boring question. The answer is always yes. But here's another more interesting question. Suppose I ask you whether it was color, colorable with three colors. That's already, you know, seems like a hard problem. Certainly there are maps that can be colored with three colors and there are maps that cannot. So at least not all of the, you know, the answers are not always the same. So it's an interesting uh, computational question. And so if I claim that the map is three colorable, maybe it's, uh, you know, the proof is not easy. So that's the type of claim that we are going to give zero knowledge proofs for. Okay, the claim will be a map M is three colorable. And what I want to show you is uh, that this type of claims have zero knowledge proofs. And maybe you don't see why it's relevant to proving, uh, you know, identifications to a computer or to, or, uh, you know, Riemann hypothesis. Forget it. We are just going to focus on this type of claims. Okay, everybody is happy with what time, type of claims we have. I claim that a certain map is free colorable, and I want to convince you that this is a, of this fact without giving you any information about the coloring or anything else. Okay. Let's see how we'll do it. So actually, I'll claim it about this map. It's, a, it's another map. Uh, it's, uh, you know where it's coming from? It's a famous aperiodic tiling of Penrose, but that's not relevant. It's just beautiful. OK, so we have this uh, planar map. And my claim, more specifically, is not just that I'm going to color it with three colors. I'm going to color it with these three colors, red, yellow, and green. Okay. And I want to prove this in zero knowledge. So let me tell you how I'm going to do it, and then we'll actually run through this protocol. And you are going to participate. So, uh, let's make a, one important observation. Suppose that I really could color it with three colors. So suppose I can color some map with three colors. Let's say this three country map. I could color it with three colors. Of course, I could. Here are three colors, three coloring of this map. It's like this corner of, the, of this big thing. Notice that if I have one coloring, I immediately have six. Okay, where do I get these six? I just change the names of the colors, right? There are six ways, you know, there are six permutations of three colors. So if I have this coloring, I immediately have this one. They are all as legal as the, you know, the first, okay? So if I have one coloring, I have six of them. That's the basic uh, thing that we will use. Okay, everybody's happy? Okay, good. So here's the structure of the proof. What we'll do is repeat until you are tired uh, the following iterations. I'm going to hide one of the, so I'm going to, I have a coloring, I claim at least I have a coloring. So since I have one, I have six, I draw one of them at random and I'm going to hide it under this uh, map. So I'm going to hide the colors in this envelope. So I'm actually going to insert a color to each one of these envelopes, okay? 
And then you want to check me. We'll see later why it's a good check, but you, pair in any, you pick in any way you like two adjacent countries and ask me to see that the colors are distinct and indeed that they are from this set of colors. And when you request this, I do it for you. I open these two envelopes, nothing more. And you check that, you know, it's uh, what, you should, uh, what you should check. So in other words, if you see uh, any illegal color, if I put there, uh, you know, gray or black or something, you reject immediately. If you see these two adjacent countries having the same color, you reject also. Otherwise, you accept. Okay. And as I said, you don't have to do it twice. You, you do uh, once. You can do it as many times as you like. If you catch me once, I'm dead. Okay. So let's do it. Here is the map. I'm going to hide the coloring in there. And now we are going to open some pair of uh, maps. I have to get out of, of this mode so that I can show you the coloring. So you see that I have many, many, I've done it many times randomly, so you can ask me as many times as you like. Uh, let's do one. So yeah, I let Pierre uh, choose two colors. What? F and G, okay. Later we'll discuss why it's a zero noise proof. So let's see, F, let's open it. It's yellow and F. Well, good, they are different, you didn't catch me. Good, let's do another one. Anybody? Well, I let Pierre do it all the time till Pierre is tired. Excuse me? I and L. Okay, I, let's move it. Okay, you didn't catch me. Uh, well, well, let me go to another color. I'm not going to show you anything from the same. M and O. Oops. M and O. Well, again, you didn't catch me. I, uh, I thought you were, well, ask again. You don't want to ask M and O again? <laughs> Let's use, well, let me do it for you. Green. And yellow. So it's not the same, but it makes perfect sense, right? I picked them randomly each time. You wanted A and D. A. More? Are you convinced that I have a coloring? Yeah? Okay. So let's discuss what we've, uh, what we've just seen. So why is it a, a zero-knowledge proof? I think, well, I, I think it's pretty clear. The, the, the zero-knowledge part, in fact, is the easiest thing about this proof. I claim that given the way I'm putting the coloring, my, my coloring into, the, uh, into these envelopes, it's clear that you learn nothing, right? The exposed information at every step, is, we are assuming I have a proof, I have a coloring, a legal coloring, and I'm doing exactly what I described. If that's what I do, at every step, the exposed information is totally useless. It's just a pair of random, distinct colors from the set red, green, and yellow, right? 
because I'm picking one of the six possibilities, you know, when you look at two of them, two distinct ones, you get all possible pairs of distinct ones in all orderings. So you could do it yourself. You don't need me for it. If you don't need me for it, you didn't learn anything from it. So the fact that this interaction is zero knowledge, you learn nothing from it, is clear. Now let's look about, let's talk about the correctness. Well, if I had a three coloring, then you would never catch me because, you know, every, you know my, my coloring is legal, so all these six colorings are legal. And, you know, every time you open a pair of distinct uh, adjacent countries, you see distinct colors. So that's easy too. And the one that's uh, a little tricky is why can't I fool you? I mean, after all, I don't show you the whole coloring. I let you pick in a something tiny, and this map can have millions of countries, maybe. I let you see something tiny, and then we, we throw the deck and start again. So let's check this. Assume that the graph is not thicker. The map is not G is M. I'm sorry about this change of this is a map. Assume that M is not three colorable. Well, if it's not three colorable, doesn't matter what I do, what I put in the envelopes. There is some tiny chance you'll catch me, right? Either I put, I mean, because it's not three colorable, it's just impossible to color it with three colors. Either I put some Ill illegal color in one envelope or I put uh, two identical ones in adjacent countries, right? Somewhere. So if you pick the pair randomly, you'll catch, it, you'll catch me with some probability. And in this uh, map that I showed, it's, uh, you, you catch me with probability at least uh, 1%. So the probability, I fool you, is, is high, but not one, uh, 100%. So it's 99%. You may say that's nothing. But if we repeat it, let's say, 300 times in this, uh, for these numbers, then the probability that you don't catch me reduces to one in a billion. And that should satisfy you. Or if you want a trillion, we repeat it a few more times. Okay, so you can reduce the probability that I cheat you to arbitrarily small. So we have satisfied all the, you know, all the requirements from a zero-knowledge proof. If I have a proof, I convince you, you learn nothing from it, and I cannot fool you into believing that I have a proof when I don't. So at least for this weird kind of claims, map coloring claims, we are done. These kind of claims have zero-knowledge proofs. Now, what does it have to do with the Riemann hypothesis? We didn't, we, who cared about this uh, map coloring? We wanted, Alice, you know, wants to convince Bob that she has a proof of the Riemann hypothesis. Now, those of you who were here yesterday, I guess many of you can already guess what's coming. This map coloring problem is not that naive as it looks. Um, it's universal, it's NP-complete, so let me spell out what it means. You can translate any claim to which you want to have a proof into a map coloring claim. So in particular, there is an efficient algorithm A here that will take any claim, like the Riemann hypothesis, and will translate it into a map M. And the translation will be such that if the claim is true, then the map is three colorable. And moreover, if you have a proof, a legitimate proof for your claim for the Riemann hypothesis, the same algorithm will translate it for you into a legal three coloring of that map, the same map. And now in this situation, we can, you know, if you prove to me that 
you can three color this map, it's equivalent to proving that you have a proof for the Riemann hypothesis. And since this proof is zero knowledge, you have proved this in zero knowledge. This A is the magic dictionary I told you uh, yesterday. It's uh, the dictionary that translates between any problem in NP, like you know, proving mathematical claims, into an NP-complete problem, in this case, the, the problem of three-coloring maps, which turns out to be NP-complete, turns out to be universal. So it's very bizarre. Notice that in the zero-knowledge proof, we used the combinatorial properties of colorings and the symmetries of colorings and so on. And now, using this magical, uh, magical algorithm, we can now do the same for you know, different problems that don't seem to, be, to possess these symmetries. So as before, as you saw yesterday, this is an extremely powerful gadget, this dictionary that translates uh, every problem in NP into an NP-complete problem. Okay, questions about this? Good. Okay, so let's talk about uh, consequences of this. So we saw that if we have short proofs and an envelope, then we can have zero knowledge proofs. And now I want to tell you about some really important implication of this, which is that the global problem of handling bad people, people who don't follow the protocol uh, in, in a variety of situations, simply don't do what they should do, uh, can be handled using this uh, zero-knowledge device. So let me explain. What is the cryptographic protocol? I didn't define it, but the way to think about it is uh, just like a program, only a program in which there are various people or computers participating. And there are all sorts of them, as you see in this picture, and maybe some of them are bad. Now, the protocol specifies that, you know, they should act in, you know, certain specific ways. You know, maybe first this guy should send a message that depends on his secret value. You know, maybe it's his salary or his password or something like that. And then after that, maybe this guy should send another message that depends on the first message and his secret information and so on. That's, that's how all protocols look. And the main problem of cryptographic protocols or all these interactions uh, is that, you know, some people may try to sabotage them. How can we check that they do what they should do where the actions they take in particular depend on private information? If we had no privacy issues, there wouldn't be a problem. But the things they compute depend in part on their secret input. So we can, there's no obvious way to check that they do what they should. And here's where zero knowledge helps. The idea is the following. You want to check, for example, that in the first step, the first guy did what he should. He computed this function of his secret information. So we want to check that he, he did this, right? That what he sent was actually this function applied to his you know, secret input. Well, notice that the statement x equals m1 of s2, you know, this statement has a short proof. The secret of the second player is the proof that, you know, we can't calculate. If everybody knew it, they could check, right? So it's a statement with a short proof. Given that it has a short proof with zero knowledge, he can prove it in zero knowledge to the other guys. And he doesn't lose his privacy. And on the other hand, everybody is convinced that he acted correctly. So 
this tool allows you to basically get rid of the problem of faults. So we've seen uh, how to force people to behave well, and I want to talk briefly, 10 minutes, about lots of, you know, about what I'm not going to cover in detail, which is the issue of privacy and secrecy, even if players are behaving exactly as they should. Okay? So, which turns out to be a big problem by itself, and I'll just give a few examples, and I'll tell you what, what goes into the handling it. So, uh, don't be alarmed. This is a legitimate, uh, this is a, was a very famous uh, uh, picture in the, in the 60s. Uh, Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice, they came up with Alice and Bob long before uh, the cryptographer. It's a, it's a movie about sharing your feelings with others. Uh, and in this situation, you know, maybe Alice wants to share something with Bob. Uh, here's Alice and here's Bob. Uh, which she doesn't want to share with the others, so that's a problem we saw before, the problem of private communication. And as we said, in the old times, in the old theories, uh, they would have in their bedside, uh, you know, maybe this book that uh, they can use for establishing a private channel, but in our model, there are no private, uh, you know, the, no common information is shared. So they nevertheless want to have a private conversation, even though they didn't agree on anything before. And, uh, well, I, uh, I'm not implying anything about your personal life here. I claim, nevertheless, that most of you were in this situation and have faced this problem and solved it. And I'll remind you how and where. Um, so this is where, basically. And uh, this is how you do it. So this is what's called public encryption. That's the idea that started with the very fundamental paper of Diffie and Hellman and uh, of Merkel and was implemented in the best way, best in the sense that it didn't change for the last 30-some years by RSA, Reves Shamir and Adelman. This is when you see RSA on your uh, you know, computer in various places in the uh, on your website, then uh, that's, that's what it's referring to. So how do we do this private communication? Alice is you, you know, you want to buy a book from Amazon. Why am I telling you that you are in this situation? You know, you and Amazon, in the first time you made a purchase, didn't talk to each other, didn't discuss war and peace or anything. In fact, you just want to buy war and peace so you can maybe do it in the future. Uh, and you want to give them your credit card number, but, you know, everybody is listening. And, uh, and they also want your credit card number. And uh, how do you do it? So it turns out that the gadget needed here is slightly more complex than the digital envelope. Let me tell you what it is. So here's the digital envelope. So you can think of this as your message as X, and you can put it in an envelope and send to Bob, to Amazon. But we said nobody can look into envelopes, including Amazon. So that's not good enough. And what we need is persons, like introducing the personal envelope. Okay, so what is a personal envelope? It's, these are envelopes that everyone can manufacture. Alice can manufacture them. Bob can manufacture them. Even uh, the Don Corleone can manufacture them. 
and uh, everybody can manufacture them. What they serve is that uh, you know the envelopes Bob manufactures are such that you can use them to send secret messages to Bob. So is Bob's secret uh, you know, encryption envelope. And what it guarantees is that, like before, to put something in Bob's envelope is easy for everyone. But to look inside Bob's envelope is hard for everyone except for Bob, because he designed the envelope. And it turns out that to get personal envelopes, you don't need much than you need for normal envelopes. You need exactly the same assumption. If factoring is hard, then you can manufacture from them these personal envelopes. That's exactly what RSA did. Okay? That's the RSA scheme. I'm not going to explain it. It's not complicated. It's about uh, you know, 10 minutes of simple math. But I'm not going to explain it here. I just want to tell you some more things you can do with this uh, personal envelope because private communication does not even begin to describe the type of problems that we still didn't handle. Uh, and I just want to give you a few examples before I end. Here's one example, and this is something you should really take home with you. Uh, this is a millionaire's problem, so it's called, in this case, the story is that both of them are millionaires. What they think of is the amount of money they have in the bank, and what they want to know is who is richer. That's a basic millionaire's problem, I guess. Uh, they have nothing better to do. Uh, but of course, that's the only thing they want to get out of this process. They want to en engage in a process. They are, they are both telling the truth. They are, you know, they are not cheating. They will participate in any protocol and follow it accurately. But they want to make sure that at the end of the conversation, they both know who is richer and none of them knows anything else they didn't know before. It's like a zero-knowledge conversation. And that will be one thing that, uh, so that's the function they are computing, who is, which of these two integers is larger. That's one important uh, thing we, we want to do and can do. And here's another one, it's just, you know, in this case, they are also computing, lots of people are computing a function. This is a function that's, you know, a majority vote, which is very useful if you are doing elections, for example. And again, you want all of them, let's say nobody's cheating. We said that there is a way to handle cheating via zero-knowledge uh, proof, so we don't need to worry about this. All, they are participating in the protocol as they should. And what we want is that, and there are no trusted party. We don't give our votes to the government. We want to do it all digitally. Uh, each of us starts with our favorite vote, and we want at the end that we'll know what was more, zeros or ones, and nobody will learn anything else that can be inferred uh, from, the, from the outcome and what they know. So, and in general, you can think about computing any function. That's a, that's a real challenge. Just computing any function whatsoever of inputs that are belonging separately, secretly, to different players. And that's the ultimate challenge. If you can do that, then you can well, essentially do everything. And I'll just tell you in conclusion that, in fact, you can do that. I'm not going to explain how because of time. Uh, but uh, basically, you can compute any function privately and securely using these uh, uh, personal envelopes. The assumption, 
assumptions underlying this are exactly the ones we had, so players are computationally bounded and factoring is difficult. Okay? So I want to stress three points about this, this talk. So one, that computational complexity, the limits on the computational ability of players is essential in this whole theory. And in particular, we are using the fact that some problems are difficult in this, uh, you know, into to getting it. So the fact the factoring is hard, in particular. So hard problems, you think you would think it's bad news that something cannot be solved. Well, in cryptography, it's good news. If you cannot solve it, then you can use it to, uh, you know, protect secrets. And again, what I mentioned in the beginning that the theory of cryptography predated, and in fact, enabled this, you know, internet uh, and e-commerce revolution. Now, one thing I'm sure you ask yourself, everybody is asking themselves, this has been around for quite a few years, uh, about 30, you know. It may turn out tomorrow that factoring is easy. In fact, I told you yesterday that if we can build quantum computers, then factoring is easy. What do we do? So, it turns out that it's, uh, it's a tough one because we have very few alternatives to to uh, factoring that will sustain this theory. In fact, some of these alternatives can also be broken by quantum computers, not all yet, but some. So that's a, a serious issue and uh, a major open question in this, uh, in this theory is whether we can rest cryptography. In fact, someone asked it yesterday, uh, whether it's possible to rest cryptography on much more solid basis, for example, on NP-completeness. These are things that seem much safer, much harder than uh, factoring. Factoring is not known to be NP-complete. And that's a basic open question. Thank you. Okay, so as in the previous several nights, there's time for questions. And I ask that if you have a question, you wait for the microphone to come to you because we're cable casting it. And that way, everybody in Princeton Township can hear your question. So. And there are two microphones. So if there's someone with the second question, you can hold your hand up and the second microphone will come to you. Uh, back to the three-color problem that you were not revealing the information, you were free to change the colors that you were coloring the map with. Uh, but how am I to be sure that you're not free to rearrange the coloring? How do but I know it, that you're... Of course, in, yeah. Of course, here in my laptop presentation, I could have changed, you know, who knows what's running in the background of this. But... I was using the fact that these are digital envelopes. We said that if I was doing it really, you know, if we were really doing it, we would do it using digital envelopes. In digital envelopes, you cannot change the content. So I may have cheated you here, but in the actual protocol, whether it's with digital envelopes or in fact with actual envelopes that you are looking at, I wouldn't be able to change the color. So this is the... Uh, so it's not relevant what I could have done here. What we, when, we, when it's actually being used, it's done with digital envelope. You cannot change the color. Maybe if I could ask a follow-up to that myself. Um, 
So in the case of the three-color map problem, you, the way you choose to reveal whether something's working or not is to reveal a particular solution of the proof. So how would you apply this to a case where the thing that you're trying to impart is the proof itself? Because my understanding of something like a proof like the Riemann hypothesis is that you would want to be able to get across a lemma or something like that to your colleague. So is that something that there's a specific strategy for how to get across? Yeah, you can think of it this way. If you can get out a bit, you can get out any number of bits you want that you are willing to give. So what I focus on is on something that is either true or false. Right? This claim is true or false. I, can, I claim that it is one, you know, the answer to this question. The map is three caliber. That was my claim, and I convince you of that. If you want to reveal more information, you can do it bit by bit. You can, so you can, you can do it if you want. If you want to reveal a little more than just this one bit, the map is three caliber, you could do it. Once you have, this is the most elementary unit of information. If you can do it with one, then you can do uh, any number. It's not as simple as it sounds, but it can, can be done. Yeah, sorry, yeah. What is oblivious computation? You have to turn the microphone. What is oblivious computation? Right, so there are uh, two slides here that I could have shown you that uh, uh, would tell you. But basically, okay, so oblivious computation is the way to uh, compute any function, like in the millionaire's problem or in the voting, without knowing what's going on. It's a mechanism that allows many participants, like all of us here in this room that just want to vote whether it's going to snow tomorrow or something, or going to vote whether we prefer chocolate or uh, vanilla ice cream, uh, to do through the computation. I mean, what the function is, we all know. We just want to know whether there are more of this or more of this. We start uttering words, like with the previous examples, and at the end, and nobody understands what's going on, so to speak. And at the end, we all come to a value that we can understand, and it is the value of the function, even though the whole process was sort of oblivious. Now, how this magic works, I could have shown you, but I would need another 10 minutes. So that's uh, Yao's protocol, Yao's protocol for oblivious computation, that when, anyway, I won't show you, but it uses, in a, an extremely clever way, these uh, personal envelopes. Um, if you can translate any problem into a map coloring problem, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be easier to translate, for example, the Riemann hypothesis to map coloring and then see if it's recolorable? Uh, no, <laughs> it will. Uh, I think every mathematician would uh, shudder to the possibility, and I'll explain why. Uh, the map coloring problem itself is difficult. The best way we have to solve it is exponential search, trying all possibilities. Now, at least with the Riemann hypothesis, when you look at it mathematically, there is some structure that we can use because people studied this number of theoretic questions for many, many years. And for example, with solved problems like the Fermat's last theorem, uh, when you look at it in its original formulation, you can use all this knowledge that was collected in the centuries. 
When you translate it into this uh, map coloring, you can translate Fermat, you can translate any of them, you lose this structure. This structure is not expressed in the language of map colors. And you know, it could have. You could have translated the whole theory, but I don't think it would be very convenient to think of. So in principle, it's possible, but I don't think the solution would be easier from the map coloring. You know, it's a translation that loses a lot in meaning. It, formally, it works. And if you had the proof already, then it makes sense to translate in order to do the zero knowledge part. But if you don't have a proof, I don't suggest it. Uh, yeah. Um, so can you say why we don't know if we can base cryptography on NP problems? Why we don't what? Why don't we know if we can base cryptography on NP problems? Uh, there are several, uh, several reasons. Uh, one, perhaps the most important one, is that, well, I cheated you, and the hardness you need from factoring is not the hardness uh, we talked about, for example, yesterday. What you need is a problem that's not only hard sometimes, but hard almost everywhere. So if you think about people who create these codes, uh, these, uh, you know, uh, uh, these envelopes, what they do is they pick two random primes, multiply them together, and then publish the result. And what you want is that this product, this integer that came out, will be hard to factor typically. I mean, if most of the primes I picked would generate integers that would be easy to factor, then it would be a very bad code. So only rarely would I come up with a hard to factor integer. So what we are really assuming when we say factoring is hard is we assume that factoring is hard typically. Factoring is hard if I pick two random primes, multiply them, it's hard to factor that integer. Now this thing we believe about factoring, it's an assumption, but it's sort of believable for various reasons. You could justify it for, because the, the, the number theory uh, gives you structure that allows translation between different uh, instances of factoring. It's sort of hard to see that if it's hard, it's hard everywhere. Okay? We have no idea how to say something like this or believe something like this for problems that are NP-complete. We may believe that map coloring is difficult, or Sudoku, like yesterday, is difficult, but we have no mechanism of generating random examples of maps or of Sudoku puzzles that will be hard. It's quite possible that while there may be some of them are extremely hard, that the typical one is easy, right? So that's the, that's the major difficulty. We don't know problems that are NP-complete for which it's uh, possible to argue that random ones are difficult. That's the main problem. Um, can you give us some sense of what the magical dictionaries look like? Any place you've talked about the magical dictionary that gets you from one problem to another. Right. So the, the, these magical dic dictionaries rely on something that I, I elaborated on in the first uh, talk, which is the locality of computation. The fact that Turing machines are defined by local, simple sequence of operations. And the Dictionary, the, the way the dictionary works, this meta-dictionary that, uh, that can translate any problem in NP into a particular NP-complete problem, is the fact that, what are we assuming? We are assuming that the problem is in NP, 
So it means that it has an easy verification procedure. So this easy verification procedure is, uh, you know, there is a guess, there is a proof that we don't know, but once it's given to us, we start to compute and we easily verify that it's correct. This is a computation that works by small steps, by simple Turing machine. So the, the way that these NP-complete look, uh, problems look like are just verifications of these local constraints. And you can believe that these local constraints can look like the constraints that a map implies. You know, every pair of countries have to be, of, uh, have, every pair of adjacent countries have to receive different pair of colors. These are local constraints. You don't see a computation, of course, I understand. But it's the same kind of constraints that you see in computation. They are local, they are simple, and they are, you don't see the, the actual values, you just want to check that there exist values which satisfy a bunch of constraints. So at the end of the day, all these NP-complete problems somehow allow you to encode a bunch of constraints on uh, a set of values that are you know, unknown. And it's really crucial, essential, that computation is, is defined in a way that has in it these local simple constraints. Um, I was just wondering, um, there's two questions. Is um, automatic computer program checkers, um, in your opinion, an MP-complete or an MP-hard problem? Um, and the second question related to that is, um, would it be analogous or be a wrong analogy to make um, automatic computer program checkers, which do not exist yet, to be kind of like a cryptography problem where you're trying to factor out the statements as, um, as if you were trying to factor out the um, the computer program would be multiplying the factors together, and the automatic computer program checker would be trying to factor out the factors that the statements multiply together. And just one last point. In your wait, opinion... Wait, uh, so the, if you want me to remember the, <laughs> the first, maybe I should answer them one by one. So you can define program checking in various ways. Most natural ways are at least NP-complete. Sometimes they are even NP-hard. So, uh, you know, they, they are hard, and whether you can base cryptography on them, I don't know, it's the same answer I gave before. It seems that we don't know how to base cryptography on NP-hard problems. We just have no tool for that because of this. We need average case hardness rather than uh, worst case hardness. And just very quickly, if I may, just one more last quick two-sentence question. In your opinion, um, do you think that string theory that's trying to factor out a common denominator that generates the rest of the physics laws, could that be seen as a cryptography problem and an NP-complete problem? Perhaps? I didn't understand. You asked about if, string, if string theory. If string theory is trying to, in a very general way, trying to factor out the common denominators of generating what the rest of the physics laws are, it's like trying to factor out common factors. I'm, I'm just making a speculation here. I could be totally wrong. And therefore, could that be seen as a cryptography problem? I'm just asking. It doesn't seem to me like one, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a finite problem at any case, and, uh, you know, I don't think that it's, uh, you know, I don't see a connection anyway.
Thank you all for coming out tonight. And uh, I'm sure we'll see a strongly overlapping audience for Ms. Reichel's talk next month. <laughs>